I'm Ray Guan, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast of the Berkeley Haas community. Today, we're joined by Heather Whiteman, a people data enthusiast teaching the people analytics course at Berkeley Haas. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Great. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Why don't you first just tell us about your journey on the people analytics path and how it led you to Haas? Yeah, it's definitely been a bit of a long journey to get there, as I'm sure it might be true for many people. I always was certain that I was going to be a monkey psychologist. I first chose my university uh, for undergrad, which was UC Davis, specifically because that is where the California National Primate Research Center was focused. And I always joke that if anyone needs their monkey trained, I am certified, so give me a call. I can help you out with that. But the funnier part was that that somehow led me to the business world. This one article was such a lightning bolt moment for me where I was like, wow, we could use data and research to identify behavioral patterns in situations that really affect people's lives in terms of their access to economic opportunities, to future growth, all of these things. And I became obsessed with the idea. I ended up switching careers right away. And I ended up moving into more of a career in what is known as industrial organizational psychology to be able to study how people at work think and apply things and always with a focus on the analytics and that's really what then turned into a career so i spent some time working in what's known as affirmative action and equal employment so really supporting organizations and individuals to ensure that there wasn't bias and discrimination i then turned that more into a we might call HR research type of careers. I went further in my education and got a PhD in human capital management. So how do we think about people and the value and and how we connect it and built that into a broader career, multiple organizations leading at, at various levels, including all the way up to vice president levels of how do we drive talent decisions based on information, based on data for, for large companies and in different contexts. So analytics has been there throughout. The people part came after the monkey part, but definitely yeah. always a thing about data and analytics. At the time that you started, was analytics, was that kind of a future thing? Because when I went to college back in the mid-2000s, I think that was kind of the next big thing. I'm curious on how you were able to develop an interest in analytics at such kind of an early stage of the movement. Yeah, it's such an you know astute question because at the time, data wasn't quite yet as popular as it would soon become. Nobody had even really coined the term yet data science or data scientist. At that time, we were still like calling them statisticians, analysts. analysts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, and it really wasn't this like sexy new term. We hadn't started seeing all these Forbes and HBR articles about big data yet. And so there wasn't really a community yet. There wasn't a connection point. And in fact, it's where I know some of my first job titles were very weird made up ones because nobody knew what to call this kind of thing. So we might just call it a strategy person or a researcher. And and so it's definitely was an emerging area as data was emerging. But Mm -hmm. that's also where the power came out is 
with this trend of more and more data that's available through more and more technology, more storage capacity, more tools and resources, came more opportunities to leverage analytics and insights better, more deeply, and in different ways than we ever had before. Data's always been there. Statistics, mm -hmm. data science, the concepts have always been around. Right. The quantity, quality, veracity, vo velocity, variety of data has just fundamentally changed since 2000. And with it has come all these really exciting new careers and technologies and approaches and people analytics being mm -hmm. a, a very hot, very, very quickly growing field feeling that effect. I love what you had said there. I think I caught quantity, quality, veracity, velocity. I don't remember the last V. Variety. Variety. There you go. I'm going to have to put that on like a poster or something. I love that. The two Q's <laughs> well, and three B's. You know, there is something called the five V's of data science. Yeah. We'll, we'll link the five V's in the show notes mm -hmm. for sure. Moving on to when you started working professionally, you've held a variety of roles, like you mentioned, from your decade plus of experience from workforce planning expert to the global head of people strategy. What were some of the most pressing issues facing work? planning when you first started in the field versus when you left? How has it evolved? Clearly, every industry, every country, every situation is slightly different. But the, the challenges that I've spent the most time working through is when I first entered the field, we were going through, at least in the U.S., a really tough time in the economy, both from one of the largest recessions, circa 2008, but also having a major recession at the same time as and I apologize for anyone who finds fault with this term, something that you might funnily coin a silver tsunami, meaning the number of individuals choosing to voluntarily retire from the workforce of very specialized knowledge areas was huge. So what we were seeing, for example, I was working in the utility industry and we would have a significant portion of the workforce who were the only people who understood the power grids that had been designed 20 years prior, who were the only ones with the knowledge and were all on the verge of retirement. And they were old systems, so you didn't necessarily want to train new people on old systems, but you also didn't want to lose the only people who knew how to run them. So we were dealing with these interesting mixes of how do we think about knowledge transfer, transitioning of workforces as new individuals come into the workforce, as individuals who have been displaced by economic shortfalls in other industries are trying to uh, repurpose themselves. And then how do you plan for inevitable changes in workforce demographics? That was something that was very powerful. And just by hearing those challenges, see how Insights, information, and connection is so important to being able to answer the kinds of questions and the strategy planning that comes with it. As my career progressed and our industries and our landscape changed, I started spending a lot more time on location strategies. So mm. things like, can we go to disperse workforces? Should everybody be located at a headquarters? Do we want- That is very prevalent right now. Yeah, and we're definitely getting that next wave. So that is all a lot of people analytics professionals and workforce planners are figuring out the remote work, 
the in-person, the critical roles piece of it. Mm -hmm. And another thing that has been really pervasive, I would say more in the last 10 years specifically, has been digital talent transformation. And so this is the fact that while jobs aren't going away, job skills required are changing. Mm-hmm. And we're right. needing a different kind of worker to do different kinds of work. And so if you learned how to work in manufacturing 20 years ago, that knowledge is no longer applicable. Now you need right. to understand how to work in a digital manufacturing world. And so how do you plan for a workforce that needs to keep up with the speed of technological change? So every kind of era has its own set of challenges, which is what keeps it fun and exciting. But we've definitely seen some interesting trends that we need to address. For sure. I remember listening to, I think it was a podcast this last week or so that talked about, there's like that popular debate about how robots are stealing our jobs. Now it's it's probably like a fine line. I think you can't just classify everything as black or white here. But what you're saying is from the people side, it's obtaining the skills required to be able to succeed and thrive at a job for now and also for the future. But from the AI side, it's to be able to, I guess, build bots or build machines that can add value without maybe trying to take away jobs. Yeah, I fundamentally do not believe that the robots are taking our jobs. I Mm -hmm. do believe that any technological advancement in any form transition things. But what I find most interesting about the robots conversation is basically that robots as a concept, so artificial intelligence algorithms are, they're not taking jobs, but they are changing the value of certain types of jobs. So rote, routine, repetitive tasks do become outsourced easily to algorithms and technology. But what it does at the same time is it increases the value of uniquely human skills. As those tasks can be completed by other ways, our ability to problem solve, to collaborate, to come up with ideas and really think differently about Mm -hmm. non-specific tasks, that becomes more valuable. And and so the skills that we're building, especially in, in programs like at Haas, actually become more and more valuable as the technology increases. One of those human skills that we have, now this is going to be broad, but there's still a lot of value in human judgment. And so I remember in the class that you were teaching us this spring in People Analytics, you had mentioned that one of your proudest accomplishments at the time was designing this model that was 85 to 95% accurate in terms of predicting employee retention or what employees were going to do. However, eventually you actually regretted building that model because the decisions that it led to on the human side maybe were not very favorable. So I'd want you to maybe elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners as I I found that to be a very unique story in class. Yeah, it's one of those personal failure stories that I'm comfortable sharing because I I got so much learning out of it. But I, I had always been so focused on data and algorithmic answers. And I was certain that I could build this very predictive model. Who's going to leave the company? When? And 
I did. I did a very good job. I used a technique that I actually teach in the people analytics course and built a model very similar to what we learned in the class. And it was, yeah, over 90% accurate. So I was able to go to leadership and say, I know exactly how many people are going to leave. I know when they're going to leave. I know how much resources we're going to need for recruiting and backfilling. I know the impact of their leaving. Look how smart I am. And and I was so proud of myself. It's horrible looking back because I thought that a good algorithm made me a smart person. And then after time and looking back, I realized how horrible of a leader am I that I have this knowledge, I have this information about who's going to leave when, from where, and its impact, and I haven't done anything with it. I just sat around to wait to find out if I was right because it was predicting the future. So I waited for the future. Oh, look, I was right. Um, where was my attention to knowledge transfer from the people who were leaving to the people who needed it coming in? Where was my approach to thinking about the impacts to jobs and exits? Where was the planning with the different talent teams around how we can bring in the right kind of people to fill these gaps? There is so much that goes on top of beyond and in addition to data and insight and analytics that anyone who just builds a model and then stops, I think is irresponsible. I think that's when we end up with issues. You might know this from the class as well. We read certain books around weapons of math destruction. If you build these models, but you <laughs> yeah. don't think about their consequences, they can have ripple effects and especially in a topic like people analytics we're affecting people's lives their livelihoods their families opportunities and outcomes and so that for me was a depressing way to look back at myself and realize how foolish i was for thinking that i was smart because i built some data model when in fact mm -hmm. the smart thing to do would be to use that information to make a difference and to really affect positive change. And that was actually the moment that I decided I'm not just a data person, I'm a strategic talent supporter. And data and insights are one of the best ways to then do good, but they are by no means the strategy by themselves. They're just one piece right. to inform the strategy. One of the takeaways I had from your class was you saying that people analytics is about 80% art and 15% science or 85-15. And I think the story you told just illustrated that even if you did build this great model and it was accurate, you still mm -hmm. need to take that step further. You have a moral or ethical responsibility to ensure that if the model results are correct, what are you going to do such that people's lives are minimally impacted? I feel like maybe in the future you can co-teach that class with an ethics professor. <laughs> uh, I love that. I am all about the ethics side of anything that affects people and especially data. And by the way, I love your 80-15. I actually think we should go with that. Because even though I've been doing this for decades, I have no clue what the last 5% of people analytics is. That's anyone's best guess. So let's go with 80-15. Miscellaneous. Yeah, um, that's, that's but, the noise uh, from the model. Yeah, yeah. there's always error <laughs> yeah. in your data model. I think that's good. Yeah. So let's take a step back. What is people analytics? Why is it important for those who are either interested in the field or for those who are just getting their MBA? And why is it important for someone who isn't interested in doing HR or isn't 
really coming to Haas for this concentration to be aware of people analytics? Yeah, people analytics, at least to me, is if I'm sticking to a generic definition, it's really just the application of information in any form about people in a business context to drive results. But if I'm talking about it more me, Heather, to me, it is this oddly absent until recently necessary blend of what is the real value of an organization? Because the value of an organization is not in its financial capital. It is not in just how much money they have, how many buildings do they own, how much raw materials do they have to make widgets out of. It is almost always predominantly the value that the people who work there bring to the organization and can turn out from it. I mean, nothing is clearer than that than these technology companies that quite literally own nothing except intellectual property and the Mm -hmm. brilliant outputs of the brains that work for them. And so it's this blend of what's the true value of an organization. It's the people, it's the talent, it's things that come out of the talent, whether that be out of their hands or out of their brains or out of their mouths or any other form of outness that can happen. It's the true value of organizations blended with this new era of data and information to inform what we do. I'm not sure if I like this analogy, but many people talk about data as the new oil. It is Mm. the new source of value. And so why wouldn't we tie this way to get insights and meaning out of our most valuable asset, which is the people. And then it adds in, it needs to blend that with what had typically been reserved for, oh, those HR people. Let's not forget that the H in HR stands for human. Mm. Let's not forget that even though there's value in the form of work outputs, and even though there's information and power in data, we're still talking about humans. We're still talking about people. We're still talking about privacy and confidentiality and decisions that affect lives and affect generations and outcomes to come. So there's this interesting intersection of the more that we can understand this most valuable resource, the more we can also not just manage them, but also do things for them, with them. So not people analytics about people, people analytics for people. And to me, that's really why I'm passionate in the area. It's actually why I didn't want to only be a practitioner and to do it within an organization. I want to also educate because I believe there is this underlying notion that we should be using people data for good. Now that good can sometimes be the good of the organization, but I'd also want to make sure it's always the good of the individual as well. Yeah, for sure. I think over the last 20 or 30 years, we've evolved into thinking that people are essentially just offering utility for companies Mm -hmm. to companies actually offering value to people, right? Like we're no longer in the generation of like my parents or even further back where you work at a company for 20, 30, 40 years, get a pension plan and retire. Like people are mobile now, people my age, rarely will you find someone who has been at the same company for their entire career, right? And so, you know, that's such an interesting 
thing that you had mentioned because even if you're not in the psychology space, right, or in the sociology space, or you don't work in HR, even if you are like a manager in finance or in product management, people analytics still matters because you still want the best employees. You still want to keep your employees happy. You still want to lead with value and offer value to your employees and develop them. That being said, then five years ago, people analytics really wasn't a huge deal or still a little bit unknown. What do you think made it kind of a hot topic today? Definitely people analytics was not a term that really anyone had heard of probably five years ago. You maybe heard some HR analytics, some workforce analytics, but very rarely. And I think there has been a fundamental shift in the realization of organizations of where that value lies. So many different researchers and companies will say that at least 70% of a company's value resides in the people. That is something that historically people did not appreciate up until 2021. Wait, you mean it was too low or that 70% was too low? <laughs> well, no, actually in the past, there was no acknowledgement whatsoever that people were value. Mm, okay. Up until recently, if you pull up any company's balance sheet or annual report, you will find that for the last uh, about 100 years that over 95% of companies list their human capital as mm -hmm. only a cost, only a negative mm -hmm, on the balance right. sheet. Now that did change in the last year. In fact, we got brand new regulations from the SEC that now require human capital reporting, which is huge, but also like a little late there, y'all, but okay, <laughs> at least we got it. And right. just that notion though, there's been this mental mindset that humans are a cost. And so whenever a company would hit a financially rough patch, first thing they'd always do, layoffs. Mm -hmm. It'd always yeah. be cut the employees. And so you'd hear about a company getting into a rough financial situation and you'd hear of hundreds and hundreds of people losing their jobs. That mm -hmm. is a knee jerk reaction to treating human capital as a cost only and not as a value add. Because if you were treating it like a true value, then you would realize that when you cut those heads, you cut future revenue. And right. that is a mindset that has only shifted in the last few years. And with that mind shift has come the realization and the importance of the value of people. And with the value of people comes the questions of how do you measure human capital value? How do we measure squishy things like knowledge, collaboration, ideas, goodwill, mm -hmm. and all of these? And so people analytics has become a necessary approach to saying, oh, good question. How do you measure that? And so that's where the 80% art comes in is it is very hard to measure people. It is very hard to measure motivation and productivity and performance. And so there is a mm -hmm. lot of art that you have to blend in with the science and it's all kind of circling around right now with more questions coming from the boards, coming from the CEOs, coming from the CFOs of what is the value of our human capital. And that's really driving the need and the impetus for more and more people analytics today. Yeah, and I think because people are so hard to quantify that, would you say, is that kind of what makes it different from just traditional like business analytics? or I guess HR work that is maybe more qualitative than quantitative? 
Yeah, you put it perfectly. I think people analytics are a form of business analytics, but Mm -hmm. with that special nuance that even though people analytics is analytics that informs the business, people are uniquely different when it comes to measuring them. You cannot measure the person the way you can measure monetary value. You cannot measure a person the same way you can measure defects in a product. When you get to measuring people, there is a whole human involved, a human that changes by mood, by situation, by factors that have nothing to do with work. Your personal life affects your work abilities. And so that's the side that historically HR has been a little more open to understanding that there's a whole human. They have family needs, they have uh, relocation needs, they have different accessibility requirements to perform. and. Where there's been a disconnect is the business analytics side has ignored the whole human and the human resources side has tended to ignore the analytics. And so there's this need now to bridge so that the information and insights of the analytics can be applied, but that the whole human is considered all of its factors, all of the things, the the broader ecosystem of of who you are as as a human, not just your work output. And and that's really where um, the differences between the two come up, but it's also where the power lies. Right. I think a lot of organizations now are rightly so making decisions on like the example that you brought up, like layoffs, right? Sometimes they are necessary. Before it might have just been a straight up numbers decision. But now I think the smarter companies are considering outside factors, right? Like, well, what if someone was on paternity leave or maybe they have other things going on in their lives? If this job means a lot to someone who can't easily find another job, that could also factor into the consideration of any type of personnel decisions. Um, Cool. So you've been teaching at Haas now for a couple of years. Prior to that, I believe you were a VP as global head of people strategy at GE. So walk me through that transition from that role that you had there to teaching at Haas or to just teaching in general. Yeah, there there definitely was a bit of a natural progression. So I mentioned earlier too that I found my way into people analytics because I discovered this power of data and analytics to make a positive impact in the work world. And that's what first led me into people analytics. And over years, my, my scope grew. I took on bigger and bigger jobs, eventually leading very large global teams in many areas. I found myself after also getting my PhD in this area, wanting to have a broader reach than just the organization that I work at. So I was finding myself speaking at conferences and mentoring other people because I remember that when I started in people analytics, I couldn't find anyone else doing this work. And so I was looking for mentors. I was looking for help. I was looking for anyone who's like, am I doing this right? And it was so hard to find the information, to find the connection. I was lucky enough to connect with a very small, like five people who I knew who did this work. And we were able to build this networking connection. So I was always trying to give back, always trying to connect, always trying to share at conferences. And I just wanted to formalize the learning a way to get it out. 
and I was given an opportunity to teach a course at UC Berkeley Extension. And so I actually started with Haas via teaching at Extension, sharing a lot of the content. And then I got connected with a member of the Haas team and really talked about my vision and the need. And when I had that conversation around, look, how powerful could it be if the next business leaders were also capable of leveraging the power of people analytics, not just leaving it as this HR thing that's done by some individuals in one department, but really making it about a leadership approach to how we think about people in the workplace. And so I wanted to share and to teach that concept. And I'll be honest, I have a bit of a personal goal when I teach, and you probably felt this in the class, anyone who takes the fall people analytics course will get this too. I am very, very passionate about the idea that we can make social impacts by thinking about the positive uses of people in economic ways, meaning that one of the best ways to affect social justice is by economic opportunities. One of the best ways to ensure fair, common, consistent outcomes for people of different backgrounds and areas is to have equitable opportunities to careers, to education, to advancement. And so the more that we can use analytics as one of the best things to avoid bias, to identify it where it exists, and then to actually mitigate it and make a difference, that's right. really what made me want to focus on teaching is I want to show people that there's a world of people analytics and oh, by the way, people yeah. analytics is one of the best ways to counteract bias in organizations. Yeah, that's super important. And it's probably something that's been important throughout all of time, but especially as we go forward and there's a lot of awareness, right, around you talk about diversity, equity, inclusion a little bit in your class. Uh, and so I know in the last couple of years, there's just been a lot of more awareness as there should. And taking that next step in, okay, what does the data tell us, right? Like how do we make decisions that either address inequities or biases? And like you said, mitigate that, or at least be aware of it so that mm -hmm. what used to be an unconscious or a subconscious problem is now conscious. And that is kind of the first step at least you can take to address. What have you learned from the students of Berkeley? Um, I've definitely learned a lot. So I must say there is a special place for being instructor of an elective course, meaning mm -hmm. I get a very biased sample using research terms of everyone who comes to the class has at least some interest in the topic. So I get so much out of the interest level and the involvement of the students. I have been very impressed with the different applications and stories. So I have had students, many of whom will share with me outside of class as well, how these principles apply to their own very unique experiences with their work and their industries. And so I've learned parallels uh, from one student of how we even think about this in like a veterinary setting. I have had other students who have shared particular impacts that happened right with COVID occurring and how we can think about people analytics there. So the examples right. of just how ubiquitous people analytics questions are have been very eye-opening for me. And I would also say I've been very 
pressed and heartened that I do believe there is this generation of future leaders who is more than prepared to have these kind of strategic conversations about data, about insights, and really push the envelope a little. And that's something that I wish that when I was starting out, I had been a little more bold to do, but I've really been learning and seeing from the Haas members that there is this desire to push towards both more uses of analytics and people data, but more mm -hmm. appropriate uses of people analytics and data, especially around things like privacy, appropriateness of use, and things like that. You're right. There's always trade-offs in terms of if you use too much data on people where, like you said, invades people's privacy. I think that there needs to be a fine line that should be drawn somewhere along there. Yeah. One thing you mentioned I want to go back on is the workforce uh, changing a bit with COVID and the pandemic. What about teaching though? Have you experienced differences in teaching in person versus online? Do you have a preference one way or another? Yeah, so I don't know if any of the students who were in my class in 2020 will listen to this podcast or not, but <laughs> my people analytics course with Haas in 2020 was very unique, meaning we spent the first half of class live in person and we spent the second half online. And mm -hmm. me being the people analyst that I am, I couldn't help but be very aware of the differences in participation rates mm -hmm. in the classroom versus online. And I saw how individuals who had been incredibly vocal in the classroom when I was staring at their eyeballs mm -hmm. were much more quiet on computer screen and vice versa. And so it really left a lot of questions and I ended up doing some work with other companies on my own experiences learning from the classroom, which is how do these technology driven meetings versus in person meetings really change things in terms of teamwork, power structures and participation rates, because it's not just that everyone got quieter. Mm -hmm. Some people became more present. And so right. how do we think about past power dynamics of your physical presence versus current power dynamics of your technological presence and mm -hmm. how that is probably creating a shift amongst work teams today that we just weren't used to before. So definitely the teaching experience gave me a lot to noodle on in terms of some more things that we can study specific to people analytics. I was listening to this behavioral science podcast. I think it was either on Adam Grant's podcast or maybe it was Katie Milkman where they talk about the power shift because in a physical room, if you have people at different levels like a VP, you have a senior leader and then you have the analyst consultants or all the way down to an intern, right? And Sometimes you just feel so small compared to everyone else in the room. But then on Zoom, like everyone's squares are yeah. the same and they're in random order. Yeah, there's no head of the table. Yeah, it's very interesting. Honestly, I think a, a lot of people who are adept at using the Zoom chat function, which I have to give you props for that. You are one of the first professors I've seen that even monitors chat. But if you're adept at using that, that gives you an edge over others because you can interact, you can communicate in multiple ways, right? You don't just have to use your voice. You can send a private message to someone or you can send like a message to the old chat without disturbing the speaker. 
I'm curious if there's going to be some kind of academic research papers on those in the future. I bet people are working on them right now. I am certain they're on their way. I've definitely (laughs) heard some people working on them. I know those will be coming out. That being said, tell us about the class you're teaching in the fall. I know it's people analytics. It's the same class by name, but maybe tell folks who are either interested in the class or have already elected to go to the class what you have set up for them. I would love for anyone listening to this, if, if you're interested, please sign up. We'll keep it fun. So People Analytics in fall will actually still be an online course. And even though we're heading back to the classroom, this one is going to be kept online. One, because it's on an accelerated structure, meaning it is only seven weeks long. And that allows us to do some more stuff asynchronously rather than spending four hours uh, staring at each other. So that allows us to break it up. But also it allows us to invite more alumni. And I am, you mentioned, what do I learn from some of the, the students is I'm always surprised with how much I also learn from alumni. So alumni have typically gone on and are currently working somewhere where people analytics is incredibly salient for them, either because it's happening to them, they wish it was happening, they're in charge of teams. And so the class really does try to bring in quite a few alumni as well as current students. And that also gives more uh, range of experiences to learn from. So that's one thing to expect, accelerated online, learn with alumni. And then it's a healthy mix, as you said, of science and art. So there are analytics throughout. When there is deep analytics involved, they're typically walked through. So it is not a class that you need any analytics experience in order to be successful in. But it is a class that you have to be comfortable being uncertain. People analytics is not like physics. It's not like finance. There aren't right answers. There is data. There is information. And then there's a lot of understanding context and situation and outcomes. And so it is a class where if you're looking for keyword definitions all the way through, you're not going to get them. You, everything is 80% art. And that is true of the topics, the activities, the exercises, things like that. I mean, Ray, you were in the class. I'd love to know what do you think of it and what's to be expected? Well, so what I already mentioned the 80% art, 15% science. You hit the nail right on the head there with saying that there are just so many ways you can interpret this data, right? Because we had a final project. We worked with a company to interpret some of their people analytics data. And there were five or six different groups. And we each had different conclusions to the same set of data. And I don't really think there was one that was clearly right nor wrong. It was just, okay, I looked at it this way. Here are my insights. And I think that's something that the you know person that we had partnered with, I felt like he found different ways of interpreting the data he had sent over for us just based mm-hmm. on how certain groups looked at it. And the other thing I want to mention is that you get to learn about a lot of new tools. I really loved our usage of ONA, Organizational Network Analysis. Nice. Um, that and will be in the next one. I'm glad to hear you liked it. There Great. you go. And there might be even further mm-hmm. advancements. Like, who mm-hmm. knows? And I will echo what you said because I do know how to use R, but on a very basic level. And so the projects that we did have, like you have a lot of instruction. I think the one benefit to that project was I got exposed to the Jupyter tool, 
which mm-hmm. I believe all graduate students have access to. And so even if you're not looking for a career in data science, just knowing how to use that tool could be useful in the future. A good myth maybe to bust is you don't have to be a data scientist or a statistician to use people analytics. It's about being informed and making smart decisions based on available data and information. And I think that's also applicable to the course. You don't have to be in the MSBA. That being said, you are welcome. And this course is appropriate for those who are in the business analytics program, but you don't have to have any background in analytics to use it and to know how important it is to the business. So true of the class, but also true of the profession. Yeah. We'll link Heather's email address in the show notes and her LinkedIn. You can send her questions like I did about her class prior to actually starting. I want to pivot now. Typically with each guest, we uh, have this lightning round set of questions where it's just quick Q&A. So what is a favorite book that you've read so far this year? Ooh, great question. So I have a long list of favorite books. So a new book came out in just this year called Data Feminism. Now, some people get a little squirrely about the word feminism, but if if that worries you at all, I'll just say the notion is it's about how do we think about data and the use of technology in ways that maybe aren't only designed by people who have historically always had the power. So how do we think about data from a standpoint of people without as much power and how that has affected our world and society? So I would say one of my current favorite books is Data Feminism by Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein, but that I have a long list. So if anybody has interest in books about data and their impact on their world, shoot me a note. I would be happy to send you my reading list of choice. Yeah. For sure. What is your favorite metric that is specific to people analytics? Ooh, good question. I love that. It's not a metric, but I would say the distribution graph. Mm. I like to see how data is spread out and see it visually before jumping into any kind of analysis. Mm-hmm. so that I know what I'm getting into. I like getting a picture of what's going on. Yeah, and that's one of the things you had taught us, right, is to mm-hmm. not just look at the mean, is to look at mm-hmm. median, mode, you know, like distributions, confidence intervals. These are all very important. I always important. say, don't be average. Everybody's <laughs> average. They all just want to yeah. calculate the average. Don't be average. Be different <laughs> than the average. Yeah. And then we have a question from one of our other students from the class. How do you picture a typical day in the HR department in the year 2030? 2030. I like that. You know, I think that I envision an HR manager, meaning a person who's just supposed to kind of deal with HR stuff as it comes up. I envision them getting to the office, going to some kind of all employee or team meeting, and afterward there's all they have this text analysis of all the comments and all the replies said to the last organizational announcement so that they can get a read on the employee sentiment of the organization and then they take that into their regular lunch meeting with the business leader that they support and they talk about the employee sentiment before going on to the topic of the whole human well-being program that they are rolling out and how employees are interacting with 
not just the work, but the community and the impacts on the environment as a broader sense of the value that the employees are bringing to the company and to the world. How about that? That sounds so awesome. <laughs> I, I like the optimistic forecast that you project. I guess we have one more question from another student. With COVID just forcing a lot of us to work from home, right? Some companies have enforced policies that will allow employees to work from home forever or for an extended amount of time or just be able to work remote as long as it's within certain business hours. Sometimes for certain roles, you don't even have like specific business hours anymore. After the pandemic subsides maybe in a couple of years, how do you envision the future of work in terms of people working remote or working in person or hybrid? Yeah, and I have been doing some research into things like telecommuting long before the pandemic happened. And to be honest, where we are today is where I had anticipated we would be in 2040 anyway. And mm. so in my opinion, the pandemic just accelerated what was likely already coming. And unfortunately, it did so without all of the infrastructure that we might have had as in a more gradual move over a couple decades. But I think it was coming. I think my bigger concerns are without the infrastructure and without the gradual change, how much displacement was there and how can we think about that, but I think this is something that was already coming and I think it will stay and I don't think we'll see huge returns to the office. That being said, there are studies that show that face-to-face in-person work does have many benefits that can be lost in technology. And I'm also a little concerned with the technology-based remote work not leaving enough time for people to think, to disconnect, Mm -hmm. and to recharge. And that is where a lot of good ideas come from. So we'll still see how that shapes out for us. But I think we'll see a lot of this still being the case in the future. Right. Cool. And then last lightning round question. What's your favorite defining leadership principle at Haas? That is a very tough question. I like them all. How about instead of telling you my favorite, how about I like order them? Uh, Sounds good. Yeah, you talked about the okay. distribution graph, so we just want to sequence. Exactly. So I, why I'm don't you go from last to first to make it more suspenseful? Last to first. Oh, okay. That sounds a little harsh by putting one last, but um, <laughs> I think I'll have to go last, and, and not because I don't love it. I do love it, but I think we'll put confidence without attitude at the bottom. I think mm-hmm. it's fantastic, but you know, I can handle a little attitude sometimes, so we'll just deal <laughs> with that if the attitude comes up. So I'll put that one down. And then I think it's a tie between student always and beyond yourself. So I definitely believe in student always. I'm a student always, but I'm going to put that third, meaning second to bottom, only because I feel like my house people, we get that. We're already those people. So I get that. And so then I'll put two as beyond yourself and number one as question the status quo. And because I think those are incredibly synergistic and It is sort of my goal with people analytics that we can create a more fair, equitable work world through the use of analytics. And the only way we can do that is if we think beyond ourselves and if we continuously question the current status quo, especially in terms of how our past poor decisions get encoded and preserved in the form of data. So let's always be striving to change that. So I think that's my order. Yeah. of them because they're all great. Yeah, for sure. And I've got to ask you, what's next for you, Heather? 
Besides teaching the class in the fall, what projects do you have coming up? What exciting news do you have to share? Yeah, I am very excited for what's to come in the 2021-22 year. So I will still be teaching people analytics at Haas. I love that class. It's my baby. Um, definitely going to stay there. But I will be doing that in addition to taking a brand new role at University of Washington, where I will be an assistant teaching professor of data science and social justice. So probably goes without saying why I would really enjoy the leadership principles of going beyond yourself and questioning the status quo. But I will be very happily situated in a role that lets me teach people the power of data in a way that can be used to make the world a better place. And in addition to that, I've actually been accepted as a Fulbright Scholar in Guatemala, and I will be helping the University of Francisco Merquin in Guatemala City to build an HR analytics course for the first ever Masters of Science in HR in all of Latin America. So I am very excited for my future trips to Guatemala. I know, Ray, you plan to do some traveling. Maybe you can come visit and come see Antigua <laughs> and come hang out in the country while we do some work on how data and analytics can help emerging economies really unleash some power. So I'm excited to be working on those in the near future. I think the one you mentioned for the data science and social justice, I can totally see a lot of Haas students asking you about that or even maybe wondering if they can take it themselves. We have people that are very um, passionate about the issues in society today. And you know, there's like a whole host of other things that you could do with that, yeah. like we had mentioned. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. And for anyone, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to connect with you. I love to talk about people data, people data for good, social justice, HR analytics. Definitely feel free to, to reach out and maybe I'll meet some of you in a future class. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Here at Haas podcast. To check out more of our amazing guests, from current students to alumni to faculty, go to our webpage at Haas podcasts that's podcast with an s dot org props on editing this episode to navia chithi i'm your host ray guan and we'll see you next time here at haas